The following is a sermon from Grace City Church in Denver, Colorado. Grace City exists to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ. For more info, visit gracecitydenver.com. This morning we're going to be in John 1, starting in verse 35 and going through verse 51. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Peter said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. So I want you to imagine that you are just out here walking on the sidewalk and a guy who is clearly Jesus walks up to you and says, what are you seeking? How would you answer Jesus, what, what are you seeking? And, and not necessarily just in that instance where you're going, but in life. What, what are you looking for in life? What is it that you're pursuing? What is it that you're after? What is it that if you discover this and land on this, you know that life will have some kind of ultimate meaning or purpose or you'll feel successful? And maybe that's something like you're looking for love or companionship. Uh, maybe it is that you're looking for meaning itself. What is the meaning of life or my life? What is the purpose? What is the intent? What am I supposed to be going after? In our culture, many are looking for autonomy or some kind of freedom, maybe even a specific freedom to do a certain thing or to believe a certain thing or practice a certain thing. Maybe you're just looking for happiness or satisfaction. You just say, Jesus, I'm just looking for contentment. I just want to be happy in life. Like, is that so bad? What's interesting here is we come to this fourth text of John. The disciples of John the Baptist are looking for something. Or maybe you could say they were looking for someone. 
And it's fascinating that Jesus' first words in the Gospel of John are not a lecture, they're not a confrontation. The very first introduction to Jesus, and as he speaks, he starts with a question. What are you looking for? What do you want? And then they respond, and his answer to that is, come and you will see. That is, come and follow me, and you will find what you're looking for. And I almost wonder if that's meant to be a bigger paradigm, as in, if you confess the things that you are seeking, like, I'm seeking happiness, I'm seeking satisfaction, I'm seeking freedom, I'm seeking contentment, I'm seeking purpose in my life, I'm seeking prosperity. If ultimately those things are meant to be found in Jesus, like he would say to you, you're looking for freedom, come and you will find it. Or you're looking for affirmation. You're looking for love. Come with me and you will find true love. You're looking for rights. Come with me and you'll find true rights. As Jesus calls the first disciples, and that's what's happening in this text, and there, there are kind of two stories here that John is putting back to back. One is out by Jordan where John the Baptist is baptizing people and preaching repentance. And then as it says, Jesus the next day decides to go up to Galilee, and there's a second call of a second group of disciples. But there's kind of two interesting threads that are coming together here in these two stories. And one is that right here at the beginning of this gospel, John is showing us, essentially, here is the prototype disciple. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus. And he's cutting a lot of detail because he wants to show us a few specific things. If, if you want to follow Jesus, if anyone wants to follow Jesus, it's going to look like this. And then that second thread is he's also going to show us several things that are uniquely true of Jesus that make him worthy of us following him, specifically him, as opposed to anyone else that we could be following with our lives. And then when you put those two things together, you get a theme that sounds something like this. So... The big idea here in this text is that discipleship is the process of completely reorienting your life, your entire life, around Jesus. That's really what it means to become a Christian. It's not just, I, I said I was sorry for some things, and I prayed a prayer, and I continued on my life as before. It's really the idea of, I've, I've abandoned some things. I've left some things and I've changed the fundamental orientation of my life where I'm centered on Jesus and I'm following Jesus. And I'm calling this message, We've Found Him, because that's what Andrew told Simon in verse 41. And that's what Philip told Nathaniel in verse 45. They're like, We've found Him. And that gives us the first attribute of a disciple. Number one, a disciple recognizes the identity of Jesus. And we've already seen in John 1 that Jesus is the Word that was there at the beginning. Jesus is God. Jesus is the uncreated creator. Jesus is the light. Jesus is the only Son from the Father. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the chosen of God. We've already seen all that. Now in today's text, the disciples recognize seven more things. And I'll go through these very briefly, but I want you to see that as they are just beginning to interact with the person of Jesus... They're like, we see certain things that are true of you and only you. And I thought about that myself because it, the way I let off this morning, if you were to see Jesus just walking down the sidewalk, I mean, don't raise your hands, but I, how many of you think you would recognize him? And part of it is that these disciples are 
studying the Old Testament, they're, they're beginning to get a picture of when he comes, certain things will be true of him. And so when he then comes on the scene, they're like, wait, you're the one, because this, this matches up. This looks like you. So what are some of those things? Well, first of all, notice verse 36, he's the Lamb of God. And we, we dove into the meaning of this at length last week. So I'll just mention again to recap, the idea is there's all these stories and pictures in the Old Testament of sacrificial lambs or the Passover lamb or the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 that's going to come as the lamb to be slaughtered in place of people who actually deserve what he got. And the disciples are beginning to realize through the testimony of John the Baptist, the one who is coming not only to cover sin, but to take away sin, it's this Jesus. They recognize, secondly, and I'm going to put three of these together, they recognize he's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, the son of man. And what's important about those designations is, first of all, they, they place Jesus in a particular place, in a particular family, they're reminding us Jesus is fully God. And I would venture to say that if you, if you bumped into Jesus at any point in the first 30 years of his life, this is how you would have known him. Oh yeah, Jesus of Nazareth. And we're growing up next door. We're in Capernaum or Bethsaida or whatever. But yeah, like people know Jesus of Nazareth, the, the son of Joseph, his earthly father. The son of man was actually, interestingly enough, it was Jesus' favorite title for himself. His favorite title was not even like, I'm the Messiah. But he says, son of man, son of man, son of man. And the idea is that it's going to take another son of man or a son of Adam who can come and reverse the curse of Adam. We need a second man, a second Adam who can come. And Jesus loves this whole picture that it takes someone who is fully human to, re to reverse the curse, to undo the curse that has fallen on humanity. So that's focusing on the human side. And then the flip side of that is this third one. Notice verse 49. They recognize he's the son of God. And it's kind of a counterpoint of we know he's Jesus of Nazareth. We know he's the son of Joseph. We know he's the son of man, but he's also the son of God. So they're saying not only is he human, he's divine. And we recognize both of these things without contradiction that when Jesus was born of Mary, he didn't suddenly come into existence. They're recognizing he is this eternal, preexistent son of God. Fourthly, they note that he's a rabbi, verse 38, and again, verse 49. This one's fascinating because in this culture, and some of you just heard this not that long ago when we were going through our discipleship series, because we talked about how Jesus came at a time and into a culture that the basic model of teaching was this rabbinic model of teaching, and Jesus was a rabbi. And John does a lot of this. You'll notice a lot of its parenthesis in the English language in your text where he's explaining something. He's like, rabbi, which means teacher. So we would, we would maybe say teacher, but a couple interesting things about them recognizing Jesus as a rabbi. And the first of those is that, how did you become a rabbi in the first place? Well, all Jewish boys are going through various stages of schooling. You know, now we think of elementary school and then middle school and then high school. And back then they had these wonderful Hebrew words for you're starting to learn the Bible stories and you're memorizing the Old Testament, you're memorizing the Torah. Then you're memorizing the entire Old Testament. And then around age 15, there was this stage of learning known as Talmudim. And it was like seminary. 
And from approximately the ages of 15 to 30, if you wanted to be a rabbi, you would go and apprentice yourself under another rabbi. So someone else that's already recognized as a great teacher of the law of God, and you're saying, I'm going to come and study with you, study under you, learn from you. But if you remember back to our discipleship series, this is not like going to a classroom, sitting there for an hour, taking down notes, getting in your car, getting on your mule, and, and going back home and getting on with the rest of your day. It was, it was an apprenticeship. And so those students would come and say, we are living with our rabbi, and we are eating with our rabbi, and we are preparing meals with our rabbi, and we are learning a trade with our rabbi, and we are memorizing with our rabbi. We're just doing life together. Okay, so what's interesting is in the Bible, no writer ever refers to Jesus as the student of another rabbi. You just can't find it. I mean, he's in the, he's in the temple at age 12, which was prior to the Talmudim, but he never studies under a rabbi. In fact, what, what do we know about Jesus between the ages of 15 and 30? Who was he with? What was he doing? Well, the only little snapshot we have is he was the son of a carpenter, and he was with his father learning the family trade. And Jesus is later himself recognized as probably a carpenter because your, your, your dad was a carpenter. So if I could bring this into the modern this is how shocking it is that A, Jesus is a rabbi, and B, that anybody recognizes him as a rabbi. This is like going to Harvard and taking an ethics class at Harvard or a theology class at Harvard, and this person, not only did they not go to an Ivy League school, they didn't go to college, uh, but they do have a welding certificate. They, they did learn how to do that. So what qualifies Jesus to be a rabbi? Why, why, why are you teaching the theology classes at an Ivy League when you, you didn't learn that, really, the way we would expect someone to learn it, to teach it? And the answer, of course, is his identity qualifies him. He is a man of perfect character. He is a man of infinite wisdom and knowledge because going back to the, what I just said, he's the son of God. And they have to connect these of like, we, we have to believe you are something more than a mere human if we're going to follow you and call you a teacher or a rabbi and apprentice ourselves under you. Because we see something in your life in just a glimpse that says we can learn from him and we want to be like him and we want to be with him. Next thing is, uh, and again, we're just saying what things that the, the earliest disciples recognized these things to be true of Jesus. The next one is they recognized he's the Messiah or the King of Israel, verses 41 and 49. This is said of Andrew. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And we talked about that one last week as well, that the Old Testament, the Hebrew word Messiah is the same anointed one as the Greek word in the New Testament, Christ or Christos. It means anointed one. And who was anointed in the Old Testament? Well, some prophets, some priests, but, but mainly the kings at their coronation or when they're recognized that God's anointing is on you. And you've heard that phrase maybe, like the anointing was on him for this special role. And so you can almost use these terms synonymously. To say that he's the Messiah is to say that he's the king of Israel. This is another fascinating one because Israel hasn't had a king for 600 years. So imagine a guy walking around in dusty sandals 
and just an ordinary robe, and he's got the hands of a carpenter, which was not like whittling chairs, but it was more like building houses. And you think, that's the king of Israel. We haven't had one for 600 years, but he's the king. And again, what, what are they recognizing in Jesus, about Jesus, to say, you are this special king, this descendant of David that we have waited for. And because you're here and because you're king, the kingdom of God is restored and somehow we're saved. And then finally, they recognize he's the fulfillment of the law and prophets, verse 45. Verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Now that's incredible because it's saying they knew what the Hebrew scriptures said and they recognized these prophecies and these pictures and these promises are pointing forward to this one redeemer, this shepherd king who will come. And they're looking at Jesus and they're saying, you're the one that Moses wrote about. You're the one that the prophets told us about. So, and I, I love this. It just means Jesus didn't just drop out of thin air and just say, I'm a savior. And they're like, what's a savior? I'm, I'm the Lord. Well, what's the Lord? I'm the Messiah. What's a Messiah? The, the idea is he's coming in fulfillment of all these things that they knew about from the Old Testament and they anticipated. And when they see him, they're like, you're the one. Now I'm going to add one more thing that they recognize. And this one's more of a promise. So this, this is not something they're like, we see this. This is something Jesus says, you will see this. And as you spend time with me, and as we do life together, here's something else you're going to recognize. And that is that he, Jesus, is the one who reunites heaven and earth. Verse 51. Verse 51 says, And Jesus said to, and it's Nathanael here, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And by the way, I realize this, this verse could be its own sermon. There's so much here. Let me just summarize. Many of you are probably familiar with the Old Testament story in the book of Genesis. And if you're doing a chronological Bible reading, you just read this recently. And the story's often called Jacob's Ladder. Okay, Jacob, from his birth, he comes out grasping his brother. He's a twin. He grasps Esau's heel. And he is known as a conniving, manipulative, deceitful young man. And if you know the story, you know what I mean. He, he cons his brother Esau out of his birthright. And then later, he tricks his blind father to give him the blessing that the older brother should have gotten. So he's a conniver. He's a deceitful person. God's later going to come and say, Jacob, I still love you and I've called you and your life's a wreck without me. But your name is no longer going to be called Jacob, but Israel. And that's where the name Israel comes from. And you might have noticed an interesting little detail here where Nathaniel comes and he's like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And you're like, what was that about? And commentators don't know what that's about. They're like, was there some kind of rivalry where a neighboring village thought, we're better than them. Like, we're not Jerusalem, but we're better than Nazareth. We do know that. And, and maybe that's the case. 
But just the fact that he just openly speaks his mind of, if, if this is the Messiah, how could he be from Nazareth? Like, what, what could come out of Nazareth that's going to be any good? And Jesus says this, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And he's actually, he uses the word Israelite on purpose to reference Jacob or Israel from the Old Testament and saying, instead of the deceit of the first Israel, now's a second Israel who's going to speak his mind. He's going to speak truly. But going back to the Jacob and Esau story. So Jacob's on the run from his brother. His brother wants to kill him for stealing the blessing and the birthright. And his father has passed away, so nothing really prevents Esau from just taking vengeance on his younger brother. Jacob's on the run. And this one particular night says, like, he's just in the middle of nowhere, and he lies down, puts his head on a rock, falls asleep, and has this dream. And what he sees in this dream is the heavens open and a ladder with its feet on the earth, but this ladder goes all the way up into heaven. And he sees these angels ascending and descending on this ladder. And when he wakes up, what's interesting is he, he kind of recognizes what this picture, what this dream was about. Because he says, I, I'm in the gate of God. And he renames this place Bethel, which means house of God. And what he's saying is, as deceitful and as sinful and as broken as I've been, God is going to do something to reunite heaven and earth. To, to be a mediator for me, to reconnect what's going on in heaven and God's purposes on earth. So when Jesus retells this, again, verse 51, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Well, what's missing or what did he change from the story? And the answer is, there's no ladder in the story. It's, he, says, he literally says the, the, the angels will be ascending and descending. And essentially what he's saying is, on me. That everything that Old Testament story pointed to of heaven and earth being reunited I'm here, and I'm the mediator, and I'm the house of God, and I'm the gate of heaven, and things will be restored because I'm here. And the disciples, we know, will come to accept that truth and recognize Jesus as that one because they're going to write about it later, and they're going to tell other people later, you should trust in him because this is who he is. Okay, that's a lot to take in. John is writing, and I don't know if you've noticed, the reason we took four sermons to go through the first chapter of John is because he doesn't come out with like this little trickle of knowledge. He comes out with a fire hose and just starts just hosing everyone with, you know, 14 or 20 names of God and a lot of backstory. But I don't want you to miss the forest for the trees because the point in sharing all those things that the disciples saw and they're saying with their own words, you're him and you're him and you're 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 the son of Joseph and you're Jesus of Nazareth but you're also the Messiah and you're the king of Israel and you're the son of God and you're you're the one who's going to reconnect us to the father and that point is a disciple is someone who recognizes the identity of Jesus a disciple is someone who's getting to know him and spend time with him and therefore recognize as it were the sound of his voice and follow him the second thing, and these other ones will go much quicker, but the second thing, a disciple gives Jesus his or her ultimate allegiance. A disciple would always give Jesus his or her ultimate allegiance. Look, so look at this. 
Think about how the story goes down. John the Baptist, it says, he's standing there. Essentially, he's having a conversation with his own disciples. These are disciples. These are followers of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God. And they're all like, okay, bye. We're out of here. We're following Jesus now. And what's really cool is John is like, good. That handoff is exactly why I came. I wanted to preach and I wanted to live in such a way that you would recognize him when he comes and transfer your allegiance from me, we're following John, to Jesus and say, here he is. We're, we're following Jesus. And I know none of you are literally sitting under a rabbi today and saying, I would need to transfer from this rabbi to Rabbi Jesus to be a disciple of Jesus. But I want you to just think for a moment about all the voices that you hear in an ordinary day or an ordinary week. And those are different voices for different ones of you. You may hear the voice of a parent or a child. You may hear the voice of a spouse, the voice of siblings, the voice of friends, the voices of coworkers, roommates. But you also hear the voices of our culture at large, you know, if you turn on the TV, you're hearing voices of advertising. You're hearing voices of, uh, you know, social media influencers. You're hearing voices of news anchors. And, and you just think through your life. All the different voices that are trying to speak something into your life. And the idea here that I hear is which voices right now would you say I'm most loyal, loyal to? Like, when, when you hear certain voices, which voices do you trust? And which do you feel yourself distrusting or skeptical of? And, and there should be answers to those questions. Of like, when, when these people speak, and they could say almost anything, I just kind of believe them and follow them. So you're devoted to those voices. They, they are setting the pace and the direction of your life because you're committed to those voices. You have allegiance to those voices. And the point is this, amidst the cacophony of all those other voices that you're hearing every day, a disciple of Jesus is someone who says, I recognize all those other voices. But in the midst of it all, I hear the voice of Jesus and my loyalty goes to Jesus. So these people over here can be pulling me and trying to tell me to do this, to think this, to believe this. These people over here can be doing the same, but from a different perspective. And through the midst of it all, the voice that I want to hear and center my life on is the voice of Jesus. And to recognize him and to go with him. And, and, and maybe you almost need to do like a, not like a book burning, but this, uh, like something physical where you're like, these are the voices that I tend to follow, to listen to, to trust, to give my allegiance to. And just like the disciples did with their feet, say, I am choosing to not give these voices my allegiance and to give my allegiance, my ultimate allegiance, my first allegiance to Jesus instead. That's what a disciple does. Thirdly, verses 39 and 30, 38 and 39, a disciple follows and remains with Jesus. And this is interesting because we don't really know where the disciples came from on this particular day, but we do know where they're going because they're going after Jesus. Jesus invites them, come and see. And some of the very next words are, they came and saw. And that's beautiful. 
John says they, they followed him, not even knowing where he's going to go. Master, where are you staying? We have no idea where we're about to go. We just know who we're going with. And it is enough for us that we're going with you. So they followed him. John says they stayed with him. Stayed is that same key word that we're going to see throughout John that means to remain or to abide. In other words, they were present with him. They didn't go to his class, take a couple notes, and leave. They went with him, and they stayed with him. And we recently talked about that as well in our series on following Jesus. The presence of that rabbi, that life-on-life learning was every bit as important, if not more important than just the information that was conveyed from the rabbi to the student. Now, I realize you cannot literally walk after Jesus and then sit around his campfire and, and stay in the tent next to his and wake up and make breakfast together and do it over and over again. So I want you to think about other ways that you can follow and be present with Jesus. I'll give you just a couple examples. You can follow Jesus and be present with Jesus in your affections, your desires, your wishes of just what am I doing with my heart? What does my heart desire more than anything? What do I love more than anything? What is my treasure, to use Jesus' word? What do I treasure? And you could say, Lord, I follow you and I stay with you with my heart. And when I find myself loving other things, I mean, bad things you just repent of if you're loving bad things. But if you're like me, more often than not, you're, you're kind of over-loving good things and excusing it. And saying, I'm not, I'm not really with Jesus, cause, but, but you're, this is not bad. And you're right, it's not. But you love it too much. You need it too much. So it's controlling you. You can follow Jesus and remain with Jesus in your hopes and dreams and aspirations. And most of you are young and you have hopes and dreams and aspirations and that's good. But are you saying, Jesus, are you setting, again, the pace and the direction of those hopes and dreams and aspirations? Like who I want to become and what I want to be like and what I want to do with my life and things that I don't want to be a part of my life. Am I saying, Rabbi Jesus, I'm following, with you, following you and staying with you in those hopes and dreams? How about following Jesus and staying with him in your priorities? It's most important that I do these things and not these other also good things. And you say, Rabbi Jesus, I want to follow you in what I prioritize. I want what I love and prioritize in my life to be what you love and prioritize. Um, and then one more. What about following Jesus and remaining with him in your patterns of thinking? or the lenses through which you view everything. Because we all have those lenses. Very often we don't take them off and hold them at arm's length and evaluate what they are. But it's important that we do that and say, I'm following you in the way I think so that I have a renewed mind and I'm learning to think about everything Christianly instead of just my Bible reading time or something like that. You've all probably heard the phrase, what would Jesus do? That was popular, whatever, 20, 25, 30 years ago. What would Jesus do? And all the WWJD bracelets. I was recently reading a book, and I don't know who first came up with this, but I think it was John Mark Comer that references it in his new Practicing the Way book. And he puts something like this, and I may have mixed this up a little bit, but it's something like WWJD IHWMRN, which stands for what would Jesus do if he were me right now? 
And I love that so much more because there's this abstraction of like, what would Jesus do? Like with his life. But you have your life. And to actually intentionally stop and think, what would Jesus do if he were me right now? And that changes the way you're thinking about a moment or an opportunity that's presented to you or a temptation, negatively speaking. But this is this, this kind of summarizing what his disciples like, I'm following you and remaining with you. So I'm learning to think more naturally, more instinctively. What would Jesus do if he were me right here, right now? Fourthly, a disciple receives a new identity in Jesus. Verse 42 so one of the men that's brought to Jesus by his brother Andrew is this fisherman named Simon. And you know him better as Peter all throughout Scripture. He's not really referred to often as Simon. It is Peter, James, and John. Or it's, it's the books of First and Second Peter, not First and Second Simon. Why? Because in verse 42, Jesus renamed him. It's right here. Jesus looked at him. Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So Cephas is Aramaic, and Peter or Petros is Greek, and they both mean rock. So, you know, 2,000 years before Dwayne Johnson, here's Jesus calling someone else the rock. And I don't think it's like, wow, we just met, but you seem to have very strong, athletic, rock-like qualities. Let alone is he saying, I know your, your character, your constitution, and, and that is rock-like. Because we actually know from reading the stories of the Gospels as we then go through this, or you can look at the synoptic Gospels, Peter was often impulsive. He's kind of all over the place, not humble. But what Jesus is saying is, this is who you will become in relationship with me. Not this is who you are, but this is who you are now because we are going to do life together and you're ultimately going to trust me. And this is what I'm going to do in you. And I was thinking about our own children's names and we had our children's names picked before they were born, as many parents do. And I, and I think that's more normal. I don't, I don't think you're just suddenly looking at this tiny pink squirming thing and like, you look like a Madison or a Micah or a Miles, I guess. I don't know. Like, what does that even look like? You just, we, so we, we, in advance, picked names that they're not determinative of their future, but there are things that we hope that some of the qualities that we see in these other people are reproduced in your life. And so you name them something important to you. But I want you to understand, Jesus isn't just hoping by renaming, I hope these qualities become true of you. His will actually is determinative. When he says, you were named this, these things were true of you. It's like Jacob and Israel. You were Jacob. And that's why I mentioned this, is it's connected to this story. Remember how God does this all throughout the Old Testament? You were Abram, now you're Abraham. You were Sarai, now it's Sarah. And there is a difference in the meaning of his names. You were Jacob, the deceiver, the heel grabber. Now you're Israel. Because El, God, is with you. So I just want you to think about yourself. Do you choose to see yourself as God sees you and not just say, I've brought along all this baggage? And Peter's bringing a lot of baggage with him to meet Jesus. 
And Jesus is like, you were Simon. I, I see that. It's not that I don't know about your past. But in me, you will become the rock. And, and Peter is going to become this bold man. By the way, in Acts 2, after the resurrection, after Peter has denied Jesus three times and said, I don't even know the guy. I don't want to get in trouble. I don't want to be associated with his crucifixion. Who's the guy 40 days later who's preaching the main sermon at Pentecost and thousands of Jews are getting saved? Because he's pointing his finger in their face and saying, you murdered the Messiah. And they're all like, what do we do? He's like, repent. Peter. Jesus is changing him. And he's willing to accept, I have a new identity, and I'm going to be one of, the, one of the foundation stones of the early church as it is, and people are going to build on my witness to Jesus. So let's go and let's do this. And we, we need to be thinking as we're going through life, and again, there are all these voices saying, here's where you should get your sense of self from. Here's how you should define yourself. Here's where you get your sense of self-worth. Like you know you're someone if you, if you what? And Jesus is saying, change that. In me, it's changed. Your identity is not achieved, it's received. I'm giving it to you as a gift. You are forgiven, you are free, you are adopted as a son or daughter of God, you're kings and queens. And do you go through life saying, I believe and I pursue and I live in the reality of this new identity that I have in Jesus? That's what a disciple does. And then one more, we can't miss this in closing, because fifthly, a disciple invites others to come and see. This is both verses 40 through 42, also verses 45 and 46. Because there's actually two episodes here where someone recognizes who Jesus is. They want to follow Jesus. And what's their first instinct after following Jesus? It's not, oh, man, this is going to be awesome for me. I'm going to learn so much. It's going to change my life. He's going to make me prosperous or whatever they're thinking. One of their very first instincts was, I got to go get other people who need what I've found. It's, it's the classic, you know, Christianity is not just like talking down to people, but it's one beggar telling another beggar where they found bread. There's plenty to share. You, you got to come with me. You got to see this guy. You got to meet him. You got to let him start doing in your life what he just started doing in my life. And this, too, is something that we talked about in this apprenticeship series. Your apprenticeship to Jesus is not done just because you're packing your head full of information about what Jesus is like. It's not done just because it's starting to get down to your heart where it's changing your affections and your desires and your priorities and your reactions to things. That's all good. It's not done when you're just present with Jesus and you're just like, me and Jesus, man, this is so good, so good. But that last step of the, the rabbi, the rabbinic process, was always go tell the rabbi's message to other people and get them to also trust and follow the rabbi. And I think the disciples understood what C.S. Lewis later talks about at length, which is your joy is not made complete until you share something with other people that brought you joy. You're like, you got to see this. you got to hear this. you got to experience this. And we're like, I'm more joyful because I'm sharing it with you. So again, this theme. Discipleship is the process of completely reorienting your life, your entire life around Jesus. And we'd be wise for all of us to think, what is some stuff that Jesus is just calling me to leave behind? Because later, 
when Jesus goes up to the Sea of Galilee and he calls Simon a second time. Leave your nets, follow me. He could have said, well, it's, I mean, there's a monetary value to these nets and boats, Jesus, and this is my job. But he counted the cost and he left stuff behind and he went and followed Jesus. We're all going to have to leave stuff behind. Tangible stuff, but, but probably mostly intangible stuff in our culture. But to, but to say, I'm not centering my life on this. This thing, this voice, this priority, this dream. I'm embracing the way of Jesus. I'm orienting my life around Jesus. And I'm trusting that I'm going to find joy in Jesus. It's like when you start a dating relationship, you, you, you suddenly start to find time in your schedule to spend time with this person. You suddenly are reorient. It's like, you know, everybody's busy now. I'm busy. I have no time. I can't do that thing. Can't do that thing. Ooh, hey there. How you doing? And all of a sudden you find, I guess I have more time and more energy. I'm, I guess I'm not that tired that hour of night because I can talk to you on the phone. And that's a, that's a good thing. I'm saying that's a good thing. But how much more should we do that with Jesus where it's like I've found a good and beautiful thing and I'm going to find time and I'm going to find money and I'm going to find I got space in my life, not the extra leftover space, but I'm going to start with following Jesus and bringing other people to Jesus with me. I'm going to reorient my life here on him and it's going to be great. You just listened to a recording of a sermon from Grace City Church in Denver, Colorado. We hope you can join us in person soon. Thanks for listening. The Lord bless you and keep you. Amen.